This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by L.T. The Life Story of a Black Bear by Harry Perry Robinson. Chapter 2 Cubhood Days. When they're small, bear cubs rarely go about alone. The whole family usually keeps together, or if it separates, it's generally into couples. One cub with each of the parents, or the father goes off alone, leaving both cubs with the mother. A cub toddling off alone in its own wooly, comfortable ignorance would be sure to make all manner of mistakes in what it ate, and it might find itself in very serious trouble in other ways. Bears, when they live far enough away from man, have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. There are, of course, bigger bears, perhaps bigger ones of our own kind, either black or brown cinnamon as the brown members of our family are called or especially grizzly but i never heard of a grizzly bear hurting one of us when i smell a grizzly in the neighborhood i confess that it seems wiser to go around the other side of the hill but that's probably inherited superstition more than anything else my father and mother did it and so do i but i have known several of our cinnamon cousins in my life and have been friendly enough with them with the she-bears especially Apart from these, there lives nothing in the forest that a full-grown black bear has any cause to fear. He goes where he pleases and does what he likes, and nobody ventures to dispute his rights. With a cub, however, it is different. I had heard my father and mother speak of pumas or mountain lions, and I knew their smell well enough and did not like it. But I shall never forget the first one that I saw. We were out together, father, mother, Kawa, and I, and it was getting well on in the morning. The sun was up and the day was growing warm, and I, wandering drowsily along with my nose to the ground, had somehow strayed away from the rest, when suddenly I smelled Puma very strong. As I threw myself up on my haunches, he came out from behind a tree and stood facing me only a few yards away. I was simply paralyzed with fear. One of the two or three times in my life when I had honestly and thoroughly been frightened. As I looked at him, wondering what would happen next, he crouched down till he was almost flat along the ground, and I can see him now, his whole yellow body almost hidden behind his head, his eyes blazing, and his tail going slap, slap from side to side. How I wished that I had a tail! Then, inch by inch, he crept towards me, very slowly, putting one foot forward and then the other, and I didn't know what to do, and so I did what proved to be the best thing possible. I sat quite still and screamed for Mother as loud as I could. She must have known from my voice that something serious was the matter, because in a second, just as the puma's muscles were growing tense for the final spring, there was a sudden crash of broken boughs behind me. A feeling as a whirlwind was going by, and my mother shot past me straight at the puma. I had no idea she could go that fast. The puma was up on his hind legs to meet her, but her impetus was so terrific that it bore him backwards, without seeming to check her speed in the least, and away they went, rolling over and over down the hill. But it wasn't much of a fight. The puma, willing enough to attack a little cub like me, knew that he was no match for my mother, and while they were still rolling, he wrenched himself loose and was off among the trees like a shadow. 
When mother came back to me, blood was running over her face where, at the moment of meeting, the puma had managed to give her one wicked tearing claw down the side of her nose. So as soon as my father and Kawa joined us, we all went down to the stream where mother bathed her face and kept it in the cold water for nearly the whole day. It was probably in some measure to pay me out for this scrape and to give me another lesson in the unwisdom of too much independence and inquisitiveness in a youngster that my parents, soon after this, allowed me to get into trouble with that porcupine. One evening, my father had taken us to a place where the ground was full of mountain lilies. It was early in the year, when the green shoots were just beginning to appear above the earth, and wherever there was a shoot, there was a bulb down below. And a mountain lily bulb is one of the very nicest things to eat that there is, so sweet and juicy and crisp. The place was some distance from our home, and after that first visit, Kawa and I kept begging to be taken back there again. At last my father yielded, and we set out early one morning just before day was breaking. We weren't loitering on the way, but trotting steadily all along together, and Kawa and I, at least, were full of expectation of the lily bulbs in store, when, in a little open space among the trees, we came upon an object unlike anything I had ever seen before. As we came upon it, I could have declared that it was moving, that it was an animal which, at sight of us, had stopped stock still. But it certainly was not moving now, and did not look as if it would ever move again. So finally I concluded that it must be a large fungus or strange new kind of hillock, with black and white grass growing all over it. My father and mother had stopped short when they saw it, and just sat up on their haunches and looked at it. And Kawa did the same, snuggling up close to my mother's side. Was it an animal, or a fungus, or only a mound of earth? The way to find out was to smell it. So without any idea of hurting it, I trotted up and reached my nose out. As I did so, it shrank a little more into itself and became rounder and more like a fungus than ever. But the act of shrinking also made the black and white grass stick out a little further, so that my nose met it sooner than I expected. And I found that, if it was grass, it was very sharp grass, and pricked horribly. I tried again, and again it shrank up and pricked me worse than ever. Then I heard my father chuckling to himself. That made me angry, for I always have detested being laughed at, and without stopping to think I smacked the thing just as hard as I could. A moment later I was hopping around on three legs, howling with pain, for a bunch of the quills had gone right into my paw, where they were still sticking, one coming out on the other side. My father laughed, but my mother drew out the quills with her teeth and that hurt worse than anything. And all day, whenever she found a particularly fat lily bulb, she gave it to me. For my part, I could only dig for the bulbs with my left paw, and it was ever so many days before I could run on all four feet again. All these things must have happened when I was very young, less than three months old, because we were still living in the same place, whereas when summer came, we moved away, as bears always do, and had no fixed home during the hot months. Bear cubs are born when the mother is still in her winter den, and they're usually five or six weeks old before they come out into the world at all. Even then, at first, when the cubs are very young, the family stays close at home, and for some time I imagine that the longest journey I made was when I tumbled those fifty feet downhill. Father or mother might wander away in the early morning or evening for a while, but for the most part we were all four at home by the rock and cedar trees, with the bare-brown tree trunks growing up all round us of the bare-brown mountainsides, and Kawa and I spending our time lying sleepily, cuddling up to mother, 
or romping together and wishing we could catch squirrels. There were a great many squirrels about. Large gray ones, mostly, but living in a fir tree close by was a black one with a deplorable temper. Every day he used to come and quarrel with us. Whenever he had nothing particular to do, he would say to himself, I'll go and tease those old bears. And he did. His plan was to get on our trees from behind, where we couldn't see him, then to come around on our side about five or six feet from the ground, just safely out of reach, and there, hanging head downward, called us every name he could think of. Squirrels have an awful vocabulary, but I never knew one that could talk like Blackie, and every time he thought of something new to say, he waved his tail at us in a way that was particularly aggravating. You have no idea how other animals poke fun at us because we have no tails, and how sensitive we really are on the subject. They say that it was to hide our lack of tail that we originally got into the habit of sitting up on our haunches whenever we meet a stranger. Kawa and I used to make all sorts of plans to catch Blackie, but we might as well have tried to catch a moonbeam. He knew exactly how far we could reach from the ground, and if we made a rush for him he was always three inches too high. Then we would run round on opposite sides of the tree in the hope of cutting him off when he came down. But when we did that he never did come down, he just went straight up instead till he reached a place where the branches of our trees nearly touched those of his own fur, and then jumped across. We always hoped he would miss that jump, and Kawa and I waited down below with our mouths open for him to drop in, but he never did. We used to try and persuade Mother to go up his tree after him, but she knew very well that she could neither catch him nor get out on the thin branches where his nest was. There was only one way in which a bear can catch squirrels, and that's by pretending to be dead or asleep for squirrels are so idiotically inquisitive that sooner or later they're certain to come right up to you if you do this and sit on your nose. Some bears, I believe, are fond of squirrels, but I confess I never cared for them. There's so much fluff and stringy stuff in them and so little to eat. Chipmunks are different. Though smaller than squirrels, they're much less fluffy in proportion and taste almost as nice as mice. Next to Blackie, our most frequent visitor was Rat-Tat the woodpecker, the air in the mountains is very still, so that you can hear sounds a long way, and all day long from every direction the rat-tat-tat-tat of the woodpeckers was ringing through the woods. In the evening when the sun was going down, they used to sit on the very tops of the trees and call to each other from hill to hill, just two long whistles. Wee-hoo! Wee-hoo! It was a sad noise, but I liked Rat-tat. He was so jauntily gay in his suit of black and white, with his bright red crest and always so immensely busy. Starting near the bottom of a tree, he worked steadily up it, rat-tat-tat-tat, and up, rat-tat-tat-tat, till he got to the top, then down like a flash to another to begin all over again. Grubs he was after, and nothing else mattered. Grubs. Rat-tat-tat-tat, rat-tat-tat-tat. Grubs. Rat-tat-tat-tat, rat-tat-tat-tat. Grubs. And up and up he went. One of our cedars was dead at the top and Rat-Tat used to come there nearly every day. Little chips and splinters of wood would come floating down to us, and once a lovely fat beetle-grub that he had somehow overlooked came plump down under my very nose. If that was the kind of thing he found up there, I was not surprised that he was fond of our tree. I would have gone up too if I could, but the dead part would never have been safe for me. Very soon we began to be taken out on long excursions, going all four together, as I've said, and then we began to learn just how much there is that is good to eat in the world. 
you have probably no idea, for instance, how many good things there may be under one rotting log. Even if you don't get a mouse or a chipmunk, you're sure of a fringe of green stuff which, from lack of sunlight, has grown white and juicy, and almost as sure of some mushrooms or other fungi, most of which are delicious. But before you can touch them, you have to look after the insects. Mushrooms will wait, but the sooner you catch beetles and earwigs and ants and grubs, the better. It's always worthwhile to roll over a log if you can, no matter how much trouble it costs, and a big stone is sometimes nearly as good. Insects, of course, are small, and it would take a lot of ants or even beetles to make a meal for a bear, but they are good and they help out. Some wild animals, especially those which prey upon others, eat a lot at one time and then starve till they can kill again. A bear, on the other hand, is wandering about for more than half of the 24 hours, except in the very heat of summer, and he's eating most of the while that he wanders. The greater part of his food, of course, is green stuff, lily bulbs, white commas roots, wild onions, and young shoots and leaves. As he walks, he browses a mouthful of young leaves here, scratches up a root there, tears the bark off a decaying tree, and eats the insects underneath, lifts a stone, finds a mouse or a lizard beneath, or loiters for twenty minutes over an anthill. With plenty of time, he's never in a hurry, and every little counts. But most of all, in summer, I used to love to go down to the stream. In warm weather during the heat of the day, bears stay in the shelter of thickets, among the brush by the water or under the shade of a fallen tree. As the sun sank, we would move down to the stream and lie all through the long evening in the shallows, where the cold water rippled against one's sides. And along the water there was always something good to eat, not merely the herbage and the roots of the water plants, but frogs and insects of all sorts among the grass. Our favorite bathing place was just above a wide pool made by a beaver dam. The pool itself was deep in places, but before the river came to it, it flowed for a hundred yards and more over a level gravel bottom, so shallow that even as a cub I could walk from shore to shore without the water being above my shoulders. At the edge of the pool, the same black and white kingfisher was always sitting on the same branch when we came down, and he disliked our coming and churred at us to go away. I used to love to pretend not to understand him, and to walk solemnly through the water underneath and all round his branch. It made him furious and sent him churring upstream to find another place to fish, where there were no idiotic bear cubs who didn't know any better than to walk about among his fish. Here, too, my father and mother taught us to fish, but it was a long time before I managed to catch a trout for myself. It takes such a dreadful lot of sitting still. Having found where a fish is lying probably under an overhanging branch or beneath the grass jutting out from the bank, you lie down silently as close to the edge of the water as you can get and slip one paw in ever so gradually behind the fish and move it towards him gently, gently. If he takes fright and darts away, you leave your paw where it is or move it as close to the spot where he was lying as you can reach and wait. Sooner or later he'll come back, swimming downstream and then swinging around to take his station almost exactly in the same spot as before. If you leave your paw absolutely still, he doesn't mind it, and may even, on his return, come and lie right up against it. If so, you strike it once. More probably, he will stop a few inches or a foot away. If you've already reached as far as you can towards him, then is the time that you need all your patience. Again and again, he darts out to take a fly from the surface of the water or swallow something that's floated down to him by the current and each time he comes back he may shift his position an inch or two. 
at last he comes to where you can actually crook your claws under his tail ever so cautiously you move your paw gently halfway up towards his head and then when your claws are almost touching him you strike strike once and hard with a hooking blow that sends him whirling like a bar of silver far out on the bank behind you and trout is good the plump dark pink banded trout of the mountain streams but you must not strike one fraction of a second too soon for if your paw has more than an inch to travel before the claws touch him he's gone and all you feel is the flip of a tail upon the inner side of the paw and all your time is wasted it is hard to learn to wait long enough and i know that at first i used to strike at fish that were a foot away with no more chance of catching them than of making supper off a waterfall but father and mother used to catch a fish apiece for us almost every evening and gradually kawa and i began to take them for ourselves then as the daylight faded the beavers came out upon their dam and played about in the pool swimming and fishing and slapping the surface with their tails with a noise like that of an osprey when he strikes the water in diving for a fish but though they had time for play they were busy folk those beavers some of them were constantly patching and tinkering at the dam and some always at work except when the sun was up one relieving another gnawing their way with little tiny bites steadily through one of the great trees that stood by the water's edge and always gnawing at it so that when after weeks of labor it fell it never failed to fall across the stream precisely where they wanted it if an enemy appeared at the least sign or smell of wolf or puma there would be a loud ringing slap from one of the tails upon the water and in an instant every beaver had vanished under water and was safe inside the house among the logs of the dam the door of which was down below the surface us bears they were used to and did not mind but they never let us come too near sitting safely on the top of their piled logs or twenty feet away in the water they would talk to us pleasantly enough but well my father told me that very very young beaver was good eating and i imagine that the beavers knew that we thought so and were afraid perhaps that we might not be too particular about the age as the dusk changed to darkness we would leave the water and roam over the hillsides sometimes sleeping through the middle hours of the night but in summer more often roaming on to come back to the stream for a while just before the sun was up and then turning into sleep till he went down again those long rambles in the summer moonlight or in the early dawn when everything reeked with dew how good they were and when the afternoon of a broiling day brought a thunderstorm the delight of the smell of the moist earth and the almost overpowering scent of the pines and when the berries were ripe blueberries cranberries wild raspberries and later in the year elderberries no fruit nor anything else to eat has ever tasted as they did then in that first summer when i was a cub End of chapter 2